Amen. Good morning. Uh, we're, we're going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. Um, yeah, if not, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The scripture will be on the screen behind us as well. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm not a super fan of heights. I discovered this while doing siding with my brother on his house and getting up on a scaffolding, you know, maybe 10 feet off of the ground. As soon as that thing started to wiggle, I was done. Like, I just, I couldn't do it. We were both up there, and you know, they're long pieces. You're trying to hold it up, and he makes a little move, and the scaffolding does a little wiggle, and okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm just, I'm done, right? So you, you, you would think that then, logically, what I would do is on... A time that I have to myself when I don't have children and Ashley's gone, that I, I would watch a, a, a documentary on mountain climbing. Right? Like that, that makes sense. That's relaxing for me, right? So I, I watched this documentary on, um, uh, it's called Free Solo. Uh, and it's uh, from this guy, Alex Honold who um, on June 3rd, 2017, uh, climbed El Capitan, um, which is uh, basically 3,000 feet straight up, uh, like a, a granite slab. Like the, the route that he took, because there's many different kinds, was called free rider, which required you to, for a couple hundred feet, three, four hundred feet, the only thing that you had to hold on to was a six-inch crack in this solid granite slab in where you would jam your arm in and then hold yourself while you kind of shimmied your leg up and jammed it in and then did this for a couple hundred feet up. But the, the crux of the, um, the whole experience was what was called the boulder problem, which is at about 2,300 feet above the ground. Okay, that scares me, just even that, <laughs> right? Okay, like everyone else is like, yeah, so what? Yeah, no, 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 for me, I'm like, I'm done. So 2,300 feet above the ground, he's got a little toehold, and he has to just use half of his thumb here and the pressure between his thumb and this foot is what's holding him there. But now he has to transfer to this thumb so that he can actually grab something over here. And he has to slip them past one another whilst holding himself 2,300 feet above the ground. Now here's the thing, he did it all without ropes. He did it free solo. Now, I don't know how they filmed it, drones and so on and so forth, but they have these pictures of like the, the drone coming over the edge and him just hanging there by his fingertips. And I tell, I, I don't know if I've sweat so much playing hockey. Like my palms are just like damp. My socks are wet. Like I'm just like, oh my goodness. I had to, I had to come down from this experience just watching it, right? Like it, it's, a bit, it's a bit nuts. But I think that we get this same feeling, this, this nervousness, this palm sweaty feeling, this, this like, ooh, this a bit of adrenaline rush, shakiness, when we start to talk about what it looks like to suffer for the name of Christ. And, and this church that we're talking about today is commended for exactly that. There's no 
you need to do something different. There's no rebuke of Jesus. He just actually commends them and commands them in their suffering what he should do, what they should do. So let's read together and maybe we can get some sweaty palms. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. These are the words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And I think we can learn a few things. I'm going to highlight three. One, we can look and kind of learn a few things from Christ's assessment of what's happening in that church, in that place. We can learn what Christ's command is and what that means. And finally, we can learn what Christ's answer is. So assessment, command, and answer. Start with Christ's assessment. Smyrna is an interesting city. It is actually the only church that still exists today. Uh, in the city of Izmir in Turkey, it is, it is still alive and well today. It was... Um, it was competing with Ephesus, which was about 40 kilometers away, for the beauty of Rome. In that they, they uh, Smyrna was actually destroyed um, around, uh, in about 700 BC or so, and it had a resurrection of its own. And in so doing, they planned the city really well, and 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 were going to be kind of this this up and coming metropolis. And so it was known for its beauty, it's, it's, it's rising from the ashes, and, and it actually was a city that was on Rome's side before Rome was the thing. See, before Rome had taken over the world and, and Rome was the, the, the power of the day, Smyrna sided with Rome. Said, we'll support you. And so they had some privileges that, that others didn't have. And in fact, they, they were the first ones that were able to build a temple for the Caesar of Rome for his worship. They were singled out as the city that would be allowed to do that. And, and because of that, there was a little bit of uh, turmoil around what uh, different groups would do in terms of worship. See, the Romans were very concerned with peace. They, they didn't want to subjugate everybody and cause them to go in this direction. What they wanted is to rule over everybody, but with peace. And so uh, the Jews, who would have a problem worshiping Caesar, uh, came and asked, well, could we have like a, an exception to the rule? Instead of worshiping Caesar and paying alms to Caesar, how about we sacrifice to our God on behalf of Caesar? See, that, that, that way we're, we're doing our civil duty, but we're not betraying our spiritual requirements or religious requirements. And so that, that was granted to them. 
But along came these pesky Christians who kind of came from the epicenter of Judaism, the, you know, in Jerusalem, like where the temple was. These, these Christians kind of came from there and spread out around the world. And so they were known as, as, as like affiliated with the Jews, except, except they were called uh, atheists, which is kind of an interesting uh, piece of information is that because they only believed in one God, they were, they were mocked for being atheists. Oh, you guys only believe in one God. There's like a thousand of them, right? You guys are atheists, which is really interesting. But what, what this did is it created a bit of a tension between the, the, the Jews and the Christians because the Jews had kind of got this, this circumstance going on where they were sacrificing on behalf of Caesar, but Christians came along and said, no, 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 sacrifices are done. We worship no one but God, and so we won't sacrifice for Caesar because there is only one Lord and King, and we won't bend a knee to him. And so the Jews had to do something to like differentiate themselves from the Christians. So they started to slander and like call them out. So what you have is you have the, the, the Roman Empire trying to uh, keep the peace, do what's right according to Caesar, and then the Jews who are trying to keep this little niche that's going on with how they worship. And so, and so the Christians get caught kind of in the middle zone here. So the Jews are, are ratting them out to the Romans because they're not worshiping Caesar and they want to make sure that there's this clarity that happens. And so the, the Christians are experiencing a significant amount of persecution in this city. And, and Jesus says so much in uh, Revelation 2, 9 and 10, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I just want to pause there for a second. Um, it's just important to recognize that, that John or Jesus here isn't being anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Jew. That's not really what's happening here. He's just pointing to the wrong, the heinous wrong that's happening because Christ who sits on the throne as king gets to decide what's wrong. Anything that's outside of his straight and righteous rule is from Satan. So he's not saying anything against the Jews. He's saying against the sin that they are perpetrating against Christians. Do not fear though what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and that for 10 days you will have tribulation. See, Christ's assessment is that there's a physical reality to the geopolitical world that's existing. And that the Christians there are experiencing a tribulation that is creating pressure. Like the, the actual word is as if a boulder would roll over you. The kinds of pressure that you would feel in your body, that you would have social pressure and economic pressure and physical pressure that would come against you and the pain associated with that. Jesus says, I know, I know that you are physically being persecuted. I know that you feel the pain of my name on you. I know your poverty. You see, when the, when the Romans came in, they would arrest somebody, but they would also take all their stuff. And so this word poverty here is not, you could in Greek say, they, they had the bare minimum, that kind of poverty. 
But this word is they had nothing. The clothes off their back, the food that they would eat, the house that they would live in, they had nothing. Jesus says, I, I know that you have nothing. And yet you're rich. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, the author, reflecting on the suffering that's happening in that church, says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, the, 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 the church in Smyrna is in a similar circumstance that their stuff is being taken away because they're being ratted out as people who follow this Christ. And the Romans don't care about their religious affiliation. They care about peace. And the Jews care about their religious affiliation. And so they are being struck from both sides. But it's not only a physical reality, it's not only a financial one, it is a reputation one. They are slandered for the name of Christ. And the slander, those who say they are Jews and are not. See, the Christians here are being accused of things that they never did, they never claimed. And they're suffering for it. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. At the beginning of Matthew, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning, he has the Beatitudes. And the end of the Beatitudes is this in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus is pointing out the physical reality of following Christ, that when you stand on the front lines of the gospel, that there is a pressure that comes. And there is a poverty that will come and a slander that will come. There's a physical reality to calling Christ Lord. But there's also a spiritual one, a spiritual reality. In verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Not Rome, not the Jews, the devil is going to throw you into prison. See, from Jesus' standpoint, from Christ's standpoint, he sees the geopolitical, the, the social reality that's existing, and he says, no, 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 it's the devil who's throwing you into prison. You see, there, there's a greater battle that's happening here. It's not simply uh, if we make the right laws, if we say the right things socially, if we can just win the right argument, that then this will stop because it's actually a spiritual reality. And this has been true throughout history. 
Reverend Richard Halverson on the floor of the U.S. Senate said, no adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, satanic, spiritual force is bent on destroying all good and its author, Jesus Christ. No adequate understanding of history can be had outside of the reality that there is a spiritual world that is here and now. Paul echoes Jesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the front edge of the gospel isn't necessarily or only a physical one. It is a spiritual reality in where the Lord of darkness wants to conquer the Lord of light and will do everything in his power to make that happen. The pressure you feel at work, that socially awkward circumstance and where you have to decide whether or not to share who Jesus is and what he's done in your life or stay quiet isn't a social one, it's a spiritual battle. The decision you have to make at work over whether to compromise on your ethics, on, on the moral standing that Christ has called you to, or to acquiesce to the culture and pursue career is not simply a physical one. It's a spiritual one. The devil is behind it. Jesus sees that and points that out to this church. Your suffering, your perseverance, or your, your persecution, your poverty isn't just an economic circumstance. It's the devil. But thirdly, this reality, this assessment should be expected. As Christians, as people on the front lines of the gospel, those who are torchbearers, carriers of the good news, this should be expected. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, after he's cast out a demon from this man and, and, and the Jews are saying, oh, you, you know why he did it? He did it because he's actually Satan himself casting out demons. You see, that's the only way he could have that power is Jesus, Jesus has to be Satan. And so they're reviling, they're slandering Jesus himself because of the good works that he did. And so he says to his disciples in that moment, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, or devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? You want to be my disciple? You want to follow me? You want to call me master and Lord? I get reviled. So will you. 
yeah, yeah, but, but, maybe, but maybe that's just the 12 disciples, right? They had a special place in God's plan to go into the world and bring Christ's light to the world. That, that must just be for them. Well, well Paul in uh, Acts chapter 9 is, is, uh, is blinded because of his, his encounter with Jesus. And, and God sends a man along to uh, pray for him and, and remove the blindness from him. And when God's speaking to this man, he says, I, I need to show Paul what he will suffer for my name's sake so that the gospel can go forward. He's outside of the dis- disciple world. And sure enough, stonings, beatings, floggings, shipwrecks. He gets mocked and abused. He's in prison who knows how many times. Paul's life was an example of this. And when I go forward and I speak the gospel to people, they will revile me. And so it's no wonder that when he goes to pass on this knowledge, he says to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed all all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Jesus' assessment is simply that it's a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality, and it should be expected. A Canadian psychiatrist, John White, said, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You personally are of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. If Jesus is right, that the suffering we experience, the persecution that we experience on his behalf is a spiritual battle, then the closer that you are to Christ, the, the, the more you will experience. It's an expected reality. So then what do we do with that? What's Christ's command? Well, verse 10 don't fear. Do not be afraid. And I'm a bit like, what? Like, come on, that's ridiculous. You're, you're, like, you're telling me that you, like, you're the God who walked on water. You raised a guy from the dead. You made blind men see. You let mute people talk. You let deaf people hear. You spoke a word and the, and, and, and the, the st- storms were calmed. And, and you can't take this away from me? Like, we're, we're being faithful here. Sh- shouldn't, shouldn't then your favor be on us? And we, and, we, and, and we should just be alleviated of this? You should just take this away? And isn't that our prayer most of the time? When we have suffering, when there's persecution that comes, when, when we're having a tough relationship because of, because of Christ. God, can you take this away? But Jesus is knowing what's happening. Christ's command is do not be afraid. Why? 
Like how, how can God love us? How can he love us if he's gonna ask us to walk that kind of road, the kind of road that leads to imprisonment and to death? How could he possibly love us in that circumstance? Why is that his command? Well, in the same verse, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. It's for your good. What? You see, when I played hockey, I never went out onto the ice without testing the stick first. You give it a flex, don't you? You, you, you don't want it to fail when it matters, right? So you give it a little test now. So it's a way to, to ensure that, that you, you got the right tool. If there's a defect in there, you put a little pressure on, it cracks, you get a good one. That, that's the kind of language Jesus is, is using here. That the whole purpose, the whole point to testing, the whole, the whole point to this suffering, this pressure, this poverty, this slander that comes upon you is to prove you and improve you. See, you, you, there's constant product testing to make it better, isn't it? We're going to test it this way. We're going to test it this way in so many circumstances to see if it holds up. Oh, we need this adjustment. Isn't that the way that it works in your life? As you face pressures, as you start to see suffering, as you, as you see persecution and, and you start to recognize the, the idols in your own heart and, and all of a sudden God starts to work on it and you become stronger and more aware of your weakness and more aware of his greatness and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're just more convinced of who Christ is. You see, that's, that's the point. Don't be afraid because I'm, I'm working here. I'm making you something. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, for this light momentary affliction. Can you imagine that? Light momentary affliction. That's just, it's no big deal. Death, what does it matter? But Why? is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is preparing for you something so great in the future that you have nothing to worry about. It pales in comparison to what's in store. And so we can call it light and momentary. It can build in you a faith of Christ and a trust in him that is so glorious that you will never regret it for eternity. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 5 can say suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. See, don't be afraid because I'm using this to make you something, to build you into something, to prove you, to improve you, and to give you a glory that you will never imagine. Don't be afraid. 
at the beginning of the spread of the gospel when the spirit of God comes upon the disciples and Peter has this sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ that day. They're, they're arrested shortly after because of a miracle they do, uh, John and Peter. And they're standing before this council and the council says, you need to stop preaching. And they say, we, we, we can't do that. He said, look, if you don't stop preaching, we're gonna have to arrest you. There will be consequences. And they said, we, we, we can't do that. And, and because of kind of the popularity at that point, they, they let... Peter and John go, and Peter and John go back to the church to this gathered group of people. And you'd think at this point in time, as they gather together, that the church would be like, okay, so what's our strategy? Like, do we run? Maybe if we go into hiding. You know what? Let's pray that God would take this away. Or maybe we could pray that all of the leaders that are in power that could possibly do any harm to us, that they would come to Christ and then we wouldn't have suffering. Right? That, that, would, that would be our prayer, wouldn't it? Like, God, take this away. Do something about it. Their, their prayer in Acts chapter 4, 29 to 30, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak the word with all Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you, do you pray for boldness? Do you pray that God would strengthen you to face what's in front of you with integrity and truth, not wavering what from Christ has called you to, regardless of the cost? Christ's command to you is, do not be afraid. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean that we don't have some fear in us, but courage, as Kevin DeYoung put it, is being clear in the face of fear. I know what this is going to cost me. I know the potential consequences, but I will stay faithful regardless. Do you have that? Do you seek God to give you boldness and courage when pressure mounts? His second command is to be faithful. Don't be afraid and be faithful unto death. Like this race isn't over when you get out of prison. It's not over when you get some stuff back. It's not over if you retire. It's unto death. Let 
Whether you die in prison at the hand of the Romans or you die of old age, be faithful. Follow my words. Trust me in all circumstances. Live with integrity with those around you. Share the light of the gospel with those regardless of the consequences. So man, if, 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 you're, a, if you're like a teenager here and you're in high school and you, you have all of the social pressures around you of, of what a, the good life looks like, about what weekends should be, about how, how you should approach sex or drugs or money or your time. Man, I, I pray that you can be bold and faithful to follow Christ despite the, the social consequences that that certainly will have. And if, you, if you're here in a, in a work environment that is incredibly anti-Christian, I pray for the boldness in you to live a life worthy of his name, regardless of it means the loss of a promotion or not. That you would be faithful to your Lord and King above all else and trust him with your future. You have the weight on you to share the gospel with your neighbor and know that that's going to create tension. I pray for boldness that you would be faithful to share the light and life of Jesus with them, regardless of the tension that may come. Do not be afraid and be faithful. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, I, I, like, I'm just so sorry. Like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I'm going to try and pull myself up from my bootstraps all I want, but it's just not going to happen. I know myself. I know the coward in my own heart. I know, man, I take the easy route. When you get into a conversation with somebody and you can steer it towards Jesus or towards the Canucks, oh man, it's just so easy to take a left. How can I possibly be a person who isn't fearful, who, who's faithful to what God has called me? And, 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 and here's where I think Alex, my, my mountain climber friend, who's a little bit insane, is right. He says in his book on this experience, he said, I've done a lot of thinking about fear, no doubt. For me, the critical question is not how to climb without fear. That's impossible. But how to deal with it when it creeps into your nerve endings. Fear is a reality. But how do we deal with it with this call of Christ to not be fearful, to be faithful in the face of persecution, even if it means our death?
Well, Christ front loads his answer. He doesn't leave us hanging. In Revelation 2, verse 8, he says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You know, church, I did calm the storm. I did walk on water. I did make the blind men see and the mute talk and the deaf hear and the lame walk. I did call a man out from his death and he was alive. But I was before that. I am the God who led people out of Egypt by mighty works. I split the sea so that they could go through to their salvation. I am the God who sits enthroned in heaven. I am the God who was before everything. I was the first. Through me, everything was created. I spoke a word and the stars came into existence. I hold it in my hand. I keep it sustained. I know everyone by name. I know the hairs on your head. I was before all of your circumstances and I am after all of them. When you're finished your suffering, when you're finished your trial, when you're finished this persecution, when you are finished your life, I am there to the end. I know the end and I am beyond it. You want to be not afraid? Look at me. I am above it all. I know the devil is doing this. I know what's happening to you. And I promise you a crown of life at the end because I started it and I will finish it. Trust me. I am the first and the last. I echo what Isaiah said of God when God spoke to Isaiah. He's the first and the last. The alpha and the omega. The God who calls us to this kind of life is the God above it all. Who is capable of turning life or taking life from the ashes who is capable of making beauty out of darkness and who brings light into the darkest places. See, our answer is in Christ. But this is not a God, this is not a God who stands on his throne on high or stands in the safety of his own realm and says, you go and fight the battle. Just go and do it. I'll stand here and I'm sending you out like sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, no. I'm the one who died. I'm calling you from the battle. I've gone before you. I have secured a finish for you. I'm, I'm calling you out to this because I walked it myself. 
I experienced the physical pressure. I experienced the poverty. I experienced the slander and mocking, and I died for it. But I didn't just die, I rose again. And so I'm calling you out into the battle, knowing that I have secured the finish. Will you join me? See, the answer isn't my own strength, but it's his. It's not my capacity, it's his. So when I keep my eyes on Christ, when I remind myself of what he's done in the world and in my life, I can run that race. Not because of my strength or my goodness, but because of his. Eight years ago, Pastor Ron had the privilege of going and visiting John and Bonnie Esau, our missionaries in northern Thailand. While he was there, um, he, he met 12 or 20 um, pastors that were ministering in Laos. And they had just actually freshly, all 20 of them, been released from prison. They were in prison for about 10 weeks. MB Mission had sent some um, emissaries over there to negotiate their release. But for 10 weeks, they were in a prison cell that was not large enough for all of them to sleep at one time. So they had to take shifts sleeping. They spent 24 hours a day in this cell. They never came out. So they had a little corner for where they would go to the washroom. But it also wasn't tall enough for them to stand. So they all had to be like this. Half of them sleeping, half of them standing. 10 weeks. Then, one of the guards would come and take one of them out. Would say, look, you need to deny Christ or we will take off a fingernail. Could you imagine that kind of circumstance? My palms get sweaty just thinking about it. Ron walked into a room of 20 pastors, all with no fingernails, with their hands raised in worship to Jesus. Because he's beautiful. Because he's worth it. Because he didn't leave us in the battle, but he went before us and did it for us and calls us into it. Because he strengthens us, because he walks with us and gives us the capacity to do so. Oh, I pray that we would be a church that lives in that kind of boldness. That would choose to take the hard path instead of the easy one. That we would see Jesus as beautiful and powerful and able to redeem even the least of us. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray for that boldness as the church in Acts did. 
Oh God, would you so give us a picture of who Christ is and what you have done for us that we would be glad to be counted among those who are slandered for your name, who are impoverished for your name, or who are imprisoned for your name. Father, would we be people so enamored by you that we would count it all as, as gain. Thank you, Father, that you've walked before us, that you walk in us and through us, that you are with us constantly and you strengthen us. Father, would we feel your presence today, I pray in your name. Amen.